0: I have the deacons passing out some pieces of paper. They were supposed to be double-sided, so forgive the weirdness. Um, just follow the numbers on the bottom and you'll see where, where they go. Um, I'm giving you a handout because while this is not the most significant of the Back to Basics series, um, I think that was probably the first one on the Bible and the, the one on salvation. Those are the most important of the seven. This is really an important one. And in order to go through it, it's, uh, we have to develop the idea a bit and it's going to take a little more time. So I'm going to go fast so you don't have to go long. Is that, Does that sound fair? And the handout is so that we can follow along and move through this quickly. And, and please pardon my, um, the, the subject that we're covering today is one that I have to do a little teaching on. It's not a, a deep dive into the Bible, although we'll have lots of scriptures to look at, um, but it's kind of a more of a, a teaching topic. So let's go through uh, together and see what the Bible says about this weird phrase, the spirit of prophecy. Bernard L. Bernard Nelson is a self-proclaimed prophet. In fact, he's also proclaimed his brother to be a prophet and his son, who I think right now is about five years old. Um, so he's a self-proclaimed prophet and he he uh, does this interesting thing. He uh, has a church in Ghana and he'll call he'll point to somebody in the audience and he'll ask them to stand. He'll tell them their name. He'll talk about their financial con- situation, um, presumably not knowing about it in advance. Um, he'll, he'll say some problem that they're dealing with and he'll Uh, proclaim some future thing that the Lord will do for them. He, um, he shares um, promises uh, that a couple will have a new baby um, or a blessing on somebody's business or just all kinds of random things. And he's fairly well liked. He's got a, a big congregation. He says that he is serving based on a divine mandate of governing the earth from heaven through humanity. He is a governor of the church in his thinking, and there's lots of churches that claim to have the gift of prophecy. There's, uh, well, the the church of the the Mormon Church, the. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, claim to have prophets. They've got, of course, well, when they started, everybody could be a prophet and receive visions from God, but uh, they quickly found out that that goes to chaos, and so they decided to narrow the scope a bit. And it was just Joseph Smith, and now today, since Joseph Smith has died, they have um, the president, who is a, a prophet, uh, and a few others, the the twelve. Um, The the Quorum of the Twelve or the Twelve Apostles are also considered to be prophets. And in their case, the writings of their prophets, specifically the writings of Joseph Smith and a couple others, um, have been elevated to the same level of authority as the Bible. Uh, The Book of Mormon, they say, is another testament of Jesus Christ. And the Book of the Doctrines and the Covenants is the authoritative interpretation of the Bible and the the Book of Mormon. Now, I just want to say, we've talked about this before. We need to establish our doctrine on... The Bible. The Bible is our sole source of truth and practice for the Christian. Um, It it is the foundation of everything. So let's just start with that and and make sure that's really clear. But does that mean that if somebody claims to have a vision that we should automatically reject it? Does it mean that if there's somebody who says that they're a prophet that we should discount them completely? You're not, you're, you're extra biblical, go away. Or is it possible that God could give the gift of prophecy to God's people? And if so, how do we know the difference between the man-made stuff, the devil-revealed stuff, and the stuff that's actually a revelation from God? So, so that's what we're going to explore today, a little bit of, of this idea. Um, and there's a, a couple of verses that I want to point out. Um, the first one is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. The Bible tells us, this is Jesus himself saying, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The implication is that there will be false prophets. We should expect it. We should beware. Then the next verse um, is... 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, this implies that not only are there false prophets, but we should test them because there's also true prophets. That puts a wrinkle in things. It would be a lot easier if it was just all false prophets. And we could just say, go away, beware, right? Wolves in sheep's clothing. But no, we have to actually do some investigation. We should test the spirits. And the fact that um, there are these true spirits um, is illustrated in 1 Thessalonians five nineteen through 22, where he says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from what is from evil, from every form of evil. So we need to understand if if we're to test these spirits and see if there's the gift of prophecy still, we need to actually know how to do that. First of all, what is a prophet? Uh, There's a good example in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. A guy named Abimelech, he was the king of Gerar, And uh, Abraham, you might remember, he had done some uh, funny business, some lying about his wife being his sister when he went to Egypt. Well, he does it again when he goes to Abimelech's uh, area of governance. And Abimelech takes Sarah and is about to make her his wife. And when God says this to him in Genesis 20, verse 7, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, you know that you will surely die. Abraham is a prophet. So what was Abraham's experience like? Abraham had visions from God, for one thing. God gave him messages. Not only did he give him messages, but he gave him promises. And he, he built this whole expectation about him being the father of many nations. And, uh, and also, um, he, he had these uh, conversations, personal conversations with God. So dreams and visions, personal conversations, uh, promises. God spoke to Abraham. That's the first foundational idea of a prophet. God speaks to them. Uh, but if you look on Exodus chapter 7 describes Moses, and Moses is on the mountain, and he's all complaining when God asks him to, send the, uh, to, to bring the Israelites out. And uh, he goes through this thing, but God, but God, but I, I can't speak very well. And finally, God says, okay, this is uh, Exodus 7 verse 1. He says, Aaron shall be your prophet what does that mean? That means that Aaron was going to speak on behalf of Moses. So not only does God speak to prophets, but prophets are tasked with speaking on behalf of, in this case, God, God's prophets, not Moses' prophet. God's prophets would speak on behalf of God. So another example you find in Judges chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And in this story, you find a woman, a judge, She's a wise person in Israel. And this is what the Bible says about her. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And if you read just a little more in that story, you'll find that the people not just looked to her for judgment, but they also looked to her for leadership, military and political leadership. She was, she was a prophetess, And she was a leader of God's people. And over and over and over in the Bible, we find prophets who are leaders. They either speak to power and help them know the direction God wants those kings or leaders to go. Or they actually lead on behalf of those leaders and take the people where they should go. You think of Samuel or um, many others that did this kind of thing. So the other thing that we find from Deborah is that God not only gives the gift of prophecy to men, but also to women. So just a couple points from there. You might remember that uh, there was a, a guy named David, a king. And David was himself a guy who got visions and, and, and messages from God. He was a prophet. But David made a big mistake. And he sinned and it was terrible. And you know what God did? He sent another prophet to confront him and call him to repentance. That prophet's name was Nathan. Nathan. Now, when you think about this story of, of David, look in Second Samuel, I think. I don't think I have it up here. Nope. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, and Nathan comes to him, and he says this statement that's really bold. To say to a king, a guy who has power over your life, he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is a bold statement that he's making. He's taking his life in his hands, to rebuke God's leaders and call them to repentance. Another task of a prophet is rebuking sin in God's people. And finally, probably the most well-known task of a prophet is one that uh, you're pretty aware of. It's future telling. When you think prophecy, you automatically think things that talk about the future. But that's actually the majority of prophets in the Bible weren't future tellers, although there were quite a few. For example, there's an unnamed prophet that predicted that Josiah would be the king and would destroy the altar that had been defiled um, there in Samaria. And, and he said this over a hundred years before Josiah was born. And then there's Jeremiah who predicted that Israel would go into captivity in Babylon and be there for 70 years, after which they'd come out. Isaiah predicted Cyrus would overthrow Babylon more than 100 years before Cyrus was around. Daniel predicts 2,500 years of earth's history. One thing after another, nations following other nations. And and he does it with precision and accuracy, future telling. It's a big deal in prophecy. So let's summarize, summarize what we've learned. Um, first of all, God speaks to prophets directly or through visions and dreams. Uh, Prophets speak for God to his people. Prophets give advice to leaders as well as lead the people themselves, acting on God's behalf. Um, God uses prophets to reprove his people of sin and error. Prophets sometimes predict the future. And uh, the prophetic gift was uh, given to both men and women. These are some of the basics that we've found so far. And when you examine the Bible, you find that... uh, the Bible timeline has a repeating pattern. When God has a, a prophet to say this thing is going to happen, he always has a prophet at the other end to pick it up and say, remember what that prophet said? It's happening right now. So the, f- the, the prediction of it and the fulfillment of it are both um, led by prophets. I'll give you a few, a few examples. In the book of Jude, we, we learn that Enoch was a prophet and that he told the people about judgment that was to come. Noah was the prophet at the time of the judgment who said, the judgment is here, get on the boat. Then you have Abraham, Balaam, Micah, Isaiah, and many others who prophesied about the Messiah who would come. And then John the Baptist says, look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's called the forerunner of Christ because he's the prophet. That was at the end of those prophecies and was preparing the way for God's work to happen. Uh, you find people like Jeremiah who prophesied about the exile into Babylon and the end of that 70 years later. Well, there was prophets like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah who led God's people to do what God had said would happen after that, that time of exile ended to build the, the temple and the streets and the walls of the, the city again. Daniel and John both prophesied these long stretches of, of, of time. One of their time prophecies was 1,260 years long, and it, was end, it would end at the time when this power, this false Christian power, would be taken away and no longer able to persecute God's people like they had been for that 1,260 years. That particular prophecy ended in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and you know what we find in that time? Lots of false prophets. It's interesting; a whole plethora of, int- of, of prophets come up at that time. It's from this movement that we now call the Second Great Awakening that we find the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came. Um, the Holiness movement, from which a lot of the Pentecostal churches and the Church of God of Prophecy, and even the Seventh-day Adventist Church came from that time. It's interesting, and I think not something we should ignore. That at the beginning of a prophecy there's a prophet, and at the end of a prophecy there's another prophet. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's uh, let's keep going. Um, I'd like you to notice something about the early Christian church. And shortly after Jesus ascends to heaven, um, Peter on the day of Pentecost is preaching, and he references this quote from the Old Testament. He says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And Peter is talking about his time right then when the Holy Spirit had just been poured out. But then later, he talks about the early and latter rain and says it's going to happen again. Something we should take note about. Now, at his time, there's fascinating things going on. He baptizes somebody, and it's like they come out of the water talking in languages they've never spoken before, and like telling the gospel to people that, that couldn't originally understand them if they didn't have this special gift of languages. And they'd, they'd come out of the water from baptism, and, and they'd prophesy, and they'd be giving messages from God and seeing visions, and they'd come out of the water, and they'd be walking down streets, and they'd heal people. Do you and I see that very much today? Huh, I wonder what happened. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 describe some of these gifts in the early Christian church. Um, they include things like wisdom and knowledge and healing, miracles, service teaching, exhortation, philanthropy, prophecy, discernment, speaking or interpreting tongue languages, leadership, acts of mercy, cheerfulness. Um, there's, there's also um, prophets and pastors and teachers and, and uh, apostles and all kinds of other things that he describes. And the early church had all of these things in spades. They were everywhere. You couldn't, you couldn't walk around the Christian church without seeing some of these special gifts. But something happened, and those gifts And miracles just simply disappeared from the church. In fact, they disappeared kind of abruptly, and the church had to manufacture them. And we find all these interesting and suspect miracles around the the second century, the middle of the second century into third century AD. Stuff that didn't really happen in the Bible that they started to, to attribute as miracles from God. Because they were trying to get back this gift that had been lost. And the question I have to ask is what changed? Why is it that the church lost these particular gifts? You'll notice Lamentations two nine. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the, the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Do you see the connection there? there there's a... A time during the Israelite experience, there's no kings yet, there's judges. And what would happen is the people would be led by some godly judge and then they'd start to rebel against God and disobey his commandments and worship a false gods and whatnot. And, and then God would kind of pull away and the nations would oppress them. And they'd call to God and repent and he'd send them a judge. And that happened over and over and over again. When they disobeyed, they received no word from the Lord. When they repented, a judge was sent to deliver them. That pattern is really clear in the book of Judges, but it's also clear in many other places, like Proverbs 28, 9 says it. One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. And you find that in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, really clearly described about uh, about Israel's rebellion. The reason these gifts of the spirit were removed from the early church was because the church turned away from God's laws and instead followed the traditions of men. That should be a, a humbling and thought-provoking ex, uh, reality that we face. And the truth is, if it happened in the time of the judges, it happened in the time of the early church, isn't it relevant for us today? Hmm. In Revelation 12:17, the Bible promises that at the end of time there would be a group of people that would have well, they would keep the commandments of God, it says the dragon was enraged with the woman, Revelation twelve seventeen says, and he went to make war with the rest of their offspring who keep the commandments of God and who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And, we could assume that the testimony of Jesus means that they have a testimony of how Jesus worked in their life, or maybe they have Jesus' words, Jesus' own testimony that they tell other people about. But the the Bible tells us what it means when it says the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 19.10, we find John, he's been given a special word from an angel, and he is overwhelmed by this angel's glory. He falls down to worship him, and the the angel says, um, do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is a really important tool in interpreting the Bible. When the Bible says this equals that, then we can be pretty confident that that's what it means, right? So the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy or the spiritual gift of prophecy. And it's fascinating that right here, it points out that the spiritual gift of prophecy is, is connected to obedience to God. In Second Chronicles twenty twenty, we find the. Um the, the king facing a horrible situation. A, a nation is coming to attack them with an army way bigger than they can uh, handle. And he asks for help. He gathers the people together and they all pray. And then from among them, some unknown guy, and he's, he's not a prophet before this, he says, I've got a word from God. And he tells them what they should do. And he tells them that they should go out and they should rejoice because God would win the victory for them. And so Jehoshaphat says this, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And then against every reasonable idea, he put the singers and and priests in the front of the army, at the head of the army. Not the archers, not the people on horseback, not the chariots, not the people who could throw rocks really far. He put singers at the front, and they started singing as they marched to the battlefield, praises to the God who'd already won the victory believe his prophets and you'll prosper. And they got to a field where the victory had already been won. An angel fought the battle on their behalf and they just got to pick up the spoils, believe his prophets and you'll prosper. You see, if, if God says something to a prophet, like for instance, Moses or Isaiah, or maybe the apostle John, and we ignore it or reject it, then why would God reveal something new? If we don't accept what he's already revealed, we've got no humility to accept new things. Obedience to what God has already revealed is the first condition for us receiving the gifts of the spirit, any of them. And with that in mind, let's, let's turn our attention to understanding how we can discern between messages from God and messages that are just from somebody's imagination or from even worse places. In your handout, I have a list. I don't think I've got it on here. Um, if you look at the list, it's a list of something like 10 tests of a prophet. Um, They receive visions and dreams. A true prophet's predictions will come to pass. They will glorify God rather than themselves. They do not give their own private interpretation. They point out sin. They warn of coming judgment. They edify the church. Their messages must harmonize with the Bible. They teach that Jesus came in the flesh. And the implication is that he... Is God and came in the flesh, because otherwise coming in the flesh doesn't make any sense. They have a godly character and they are obedient to the will of God. I don't want to go into each one of those, but I want to look at five of the most important and just back them up with scripture real quick. First of all, um, God speaks to his prophets face to face or in visions and dreams. Let's not leave that to assumptions. Let's actually let God tell us. Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, he's talking about Moses. And God himself says to these uh, self-proclaimed false prophets, he says, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face. So God, if he's going to, if you're a prophet, God is going to talk to you. And he's going to reveal himself to you in visions more likely. Also, uh, future telling. It has to be 100% accurate. No 98%. Most prophets, self-proclaimed prophets nowadays, have an average effective rate of something like 10% or less. At that rate, I could be a prophet. That is there's nothing special about being right ten percent of the time, you know. Um, so future telling has to be hundred percent accurate. Jeremiah twenty eight, nine says, As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the Lord of the of the prophet when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. But not just that, we have to also agree with the Bible. Isaiah 820 says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. And in 1 Corinthians, and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And I'd like to add a a text that's not on the screen. Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. God says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, Notice that it's 100% accurate. It already, it's come to pass, but which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. Then you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Even if their prophets, they're, they're, the things that they prophesy, their future telling is accurate, it's not a guarantee that they're God's prophet. We need to also make sure they follow the revealed will of God that he's revealed before that. Also, they need to confess the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. First John four, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets are, have gone into the world. But this, you know, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And lastly, you shall know them by your fruits. Matthew 7, Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit, by the results. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. So let's review. Prophets have always been active in the church. That's one thing we've found. It's a gift that God has given to the church. And in order for us to have success as a church, we need to follow the law of God, and He can give us the Holy Spirit and, the, and those gifts. God's true church, we've found, will keep the commandments of God, and as a result, will also have the spiritual gifts, including the gift of prophecy. And also, we need to beware of false prophets and test to make sure they're from God. Some people think that when we talk about prophets, We're talking about adding to the Bible. And so they they say prophecy is not valid after the early Christian church. The canon of the Bible is closed. You can't add to it. And and so prophecy obviously is no longer a thing. Uh, But there's other people that think that we can add prophets. Like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have the, the Book of Mormon. They even call it another Testament of Jesus. And people who go that direction, they have to, to contend with verses like Revelation chapter 22, where verses 18 and 19 say, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from them, God will take their name out of the book of life. That's a pretty dire warning and really makes you think you got to be careful Adding to the canon of the Bible is a bad idea. Let's talk for a second about that. The word canon simply means a collection of sacred works. And how did they know back in the day, the Israelite leaders, and then later the Christian leaders, how did they know what was a book of God, what was from a prophet, and what wasn't? Well, the answer is right in front of you. Those ten, those 10 tests, that's what they had. And they started with the book of Moses, which they were already confident in. And if they got a prophet that wasn't part of that, then they didn't include it in the canon. And so we have this thing called the Apocrypha. You might have a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it. They're just interesting books that the Jews kept around, but they didn't think that they were biblical. They thought that they were just stories. So there's the story of um, Daniel and the dragon, he's called Bel, because Bell to Shazer, Bel and the dragon. And Daniel's there, like a knight from the, the dark ages, fighting a dragon. Well, it was a fun story, but it wasn't part of the Bible. And they didn't include it in the Bible. And then you have the, new, the early church, the New Testament church. And they've added something, not just those 10 tests, but they've added one more component. They weren't going to accept the writings of someone who didn't personally know Jesus, So everybody in the the New Testament was either a disciple of Jesus or somebody who hung out with him a lot, like John Mark, a young man who wasn't old enough probably to be a disciple at the time, but he was always there. Um, You can find him in the book of Mark doing interesting things. Um, And then you've got Paul, who probably knew Jesus as a representative of the Sanhedrin. And then when he gave his heart to to Christ, he spent several um, years being taught directly by Jesus before he went into ministry. So the New Testament, you had to be a disciple of Jesus or know Jesus intimately. And in that story, there's other people that they they wrote different things. The book of the gospel of Judas was one. The church rejected it wholeheartedly. Then there is one called the shepherd of Hermas. And the shepherd of Hermas was a really, really, really popular book. Kind of like the prayer of Jabez was a, a few years ago or Jesus calling is today. Or at least has been in the recent past. Um, It it was a fantastic devotional book, people thought. But they didn't include it in the Bible. And it's a good thing because it taught that you you could only be forgiven of one sin after your baptism. I'm glad that one didn't get into the Bible. It doesn't agree with anything else the Bible says. It doesn't qualify because it failed the test of agreeing with the previous prophecies of God. So personally, I believe that the canon of the Bible is already filled up. There's nothing that we can add to the Bible. It is sufficient in and of itself. And I hope that's a conclusion you make, but figure it out as you explore the idea of the Bible and and figure it out for yourself. But, But even in the Bible, there were prophets that didn't get included as like their writings were part of the Bible. And so you find in the New Testament, Acts 7 tells the story of Stephen who saw visions of Jesus. Um, In Acts 11, Agabus prophesied that there'd be a great famine. And uh, and it was because of his prophecy, the church started to raise funds and to to help cover the, the need of the Christian church in Jerusalem at the time. Nicholas was another one of the seven deacons, and he's mentioned as a prophet in Acts 13. And then there's the four daughters of Philip, who is one of the church's evangelists and they're all prophetesses. Bible doesn't say anything that they tell us. I mean that they were helpful to the church, but we don't know why or what they said. So is it true or is it possible? Let me say that that way. Is it possible that we can have a prophet outside of the canon? If these are any guide, then yes, it is possible. So from what we've studied so far, we can know that we can expect a prophet At the end of that 1260 year period, the fulfillment of that time when there's a a, a false Christian power persecuting God's true people for 1260 years, and then that that power would be taken away and destroyed. And it should be around that time, late 1700s, early 1800s, that we see the gift of prophecy come back. That's a pattern that we've seen elsewhere. So it makes sense that that would um, happen. We also found that we can expect that God will give the church the gifts of the spirit when they're obedient and following his commands. And and like all the prophets before, a, a modern prophet would need to comply with those tests and they'd need to um, do the jobs of a prophet, including elevating and amplifying the message of the Bible, the previous revelations of God and giving guidance to the church and its mission. And they'd, they'd need to have, the unenviable role of calling out sin and bringing people back to repentance. I hate the idea of fanaticism. It just is, is it's not an, a neat idea for me. I want to be faithful to the Bible. So whenever there's an idea that there's a prophet, the first thing that comes to my mind is cynicism. And And it's really good. We need to actually start with a critical mindset. When somebody says, there's a prophet over here, we need to be, uh, careful to test. I've considered a lot of the prophets that I've seen in, in my day and they all fall short. They all fail the tests. But there's one person that um, I'd like to introduce you to and I'm going to use a guy named Paul Harvey to do it. Women have been honored in American postage stamps for more than 100 years, starting with one woman who is not an American, Queen Isabella, in 1893. Since then, 86 women have been honored, ranging from Martha Washington to Marilyn Monroe. Many women authors, Louisa May Alcott, Emily Dickinson, Wyla Cather, and Rachel Carson. I can name an American woman author who has never been honored thus, though her writings have been translated into 148 languages, more than Marx or Tolstoy, more than Agatha Christie, more than William Shakespeare. Only now is the world coming to appreciate her recommended prescriptions for optimum spiritual and physical health. Ellen White. Ellen White, you don't know her? Get to know her, he says. Paul Harvey, um, I got to know his wife a little bit when I lived in Arizona. Neat family. Neat family. But before we talk about Ellen White, I want to make sure that you understand two things. Number one, the Bible is the final guide for the life and practice of a Christian. Our doctrine, our faith, it has to be built on the Bible. Um, If we have a, a, a theology that's outside of the Bible, then we should reject it. It has to be found in the Bible or we shouldn't be following it. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the gift of prophecy is a tool of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is there to give the mission of the church power and effectiveness. And the spiritual gifts aren't isolated to prophets. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts, including hospitality and teaching and administration and so many other things. So the fact that we might not see a prophet among our congregation here means not really anything at all. It, it, the, the point isn't the gift or the person the gift is given to, the point is the gift giver. Our focus needs to be on Christ and his gift of the Holy Spirit, not on whether or not we have a prophet among us or what gift you or I might have. Though it's valuable for us to ask the Holy Spirit, how can I serve you? How, what gifts have you given me to bless your, your church with? Okay, so a little background. Who was Ellen White? I'll give you a tiny, tiny, tiny um, preview. Ellen White was born in the 1800s, around a time when the, when the church was few people in the church were saying Jesus is coming soon, and she got excited about something uh, this this idea of Jesus coming soon because. In third grade, she'd gotten hit with a rock, couldn't hang out in school. And so instead of being in school, she was learning mostly from her parents because she couldn't read very well due to the injury that she had had. Um, she was learning from her parents about this amazing love of Jesus and she fell in love with Jesus. Jesus. And because of her love for Jesus, she started doing anything she could, including darning, nocks, darning socks in her, in her bed. And she would sell the socks and whatever she earned, she bought these, uh, these little tracks and she started mailing them to everybody she knew. She wanted people to know Jesus is coming soon. Problem was, they had kind of got things wrong. And in 1844, when they thought Jesus was coming, he didn't come. And we call that time the Great Disappointment which makes a lot of sense. These people were believing Jesus was coming and they were disappointed severely. Uh, but you could say, oh, those cra- these people were crazy. They thought Jesus was coming and he, and he didn't. I like what Ellen's brother said about that time. He said, A tree is known by its fruits. What has this belief done for us? It has convinced us that we were not ready for the coming of the Lord, that we must become pure in heart. It has aroused us to seek for new strength and grace from God. What has it done for you, Ellen? He asked. What you, would you be what you are now if you had never heard the doctrine of Christ's soon coming? What hope has it inspired in your heart? What peace, what joy and love has it given you? That October, 1844, was a a difficult time. Fast forward a few months and you had a group of people that were going back to the Bible and saying, what did we get wrong? There's a a beauty in humility. When you can say, I was wrong, and you go back to make it right, that's, that's exactly where God wants you to be. So they went back to figure it out, and they were having trouble. And it's December, and uh, during a Bible study, Ellen White, she, she had some struggles with uh, comprehension, and, and, um, and so some of these meetings, she was just like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. And she has nothing to add. They've got all these deep Bible students that are spending time in the Bible arguing about stuff, but this verse says this, and that verse says that. And uh, suddenly, Ellen White had a, a, a vision, and this is what she said. It seemed to be, I seem to be rising higher and higher, she said, far above the dark world. And in her mind's eye opened to a scene of this glorious vision of Jesus leading his people along a straight and narrow path until the, the sky ignited with a myriad of angels and a rainbow encircled uh, uh, throne. This vision that she had was really encouraging for this small group of people that was going back to the Bible and saying, teach us, Lord, what is it you would have us to know? And it helped to resolve some of that disappointment and point them in the right direction. And as Ellen related the vision to a group of like-minded believers in Portland, Maine, she felt what she called as an unspeakable awe that she should be chosen as the instrument by which God would give light to his people. Now, if you don't believe that Ellen White's a prophet or haven't really thought about it before, you might be like the the people in her day that were just like, yeah, right. You all are crazy. There's no such thing as prophets. They're just wackadoodles that say whatever they want to say. And they they had to test the spirits in the same way that we have to test the spirits. (laughs) Ellen White didn't call herself a prophet, but from her visions you either find that she's a prophet or she's a fraud. Those are our only two options because God speaks to prophets through visions and she follows all the pattern of a typical prophet. She wasn't gonna lift herself up like that though. She was kind of humble. And even though a lot of the people in her day got angry with her, mostly because she (laughs) called out their sin, um, they, they had to compare what she said with the Bible and most of them concluded that she was a prophet. At one point late in her ministry, she challenged the president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. I just want to be clear, the Seventh-day Adventist church does not have a president. Jesus is the head of the church. But we do have an organizational head over this thing called the General Conference that just coordinates some of the administration of the world church. And uh, this guy, uh, he had latched on to a, a belief that was not really that significant, but he was just adamant it had to be the way he said it was. And Ellen White had some strong words for him because he was dividing the church over some something that wasn't that big of a deal. And you know what he did to her? He said, um, Mrs. White, I believe the Lord has a calling for you in Australia, a place where she would be in uh, the... I don't know, she'd be in a very new mission field, we'll put it that way, and she would be weeks, no, months away from him in correspondence, so she'd hear the news way after it happened, and by the time he got a letter from from her, things would have already been passed, and he could be able to ignore her. She called out sin, church didn't like it. The church in her day had to wrestle with Ellen White and decide whether or not she was a prophet. What about you? How could you know if she was or if she wasn't a prophet? One way is that you could go online and you could just look up Ellen White. Was she a prophet? And you might find some interesting stuff. I like the website ellenwhitetruth.com. They've actually collected a lot of good stuff there. But most of the websites you'll find say that Ellen White was a fraud, and they have all these wild claims about her, all of which are easily disproved by just spending some time reading what she wrote. So this is what I'd like to encourage you to do. If you're curious or want to know, is Ellen White a prophet, then do like all the other people have all had to do throughout all history, read what prophets wrote. And follow the tests. Compare it with scripture. See if she matches up. And if she does, great. And if she doesn't, then reject her. It's a choice you need to make. A choice that only you can make for yourself. I could spend a lot of time wading through these tests, and we don't have time to do that. Um, do that on your own time. But I do want to, to give you a suggestion. On the back as you leave, there's probably three books, at least three books. One of them is called The, the Desire of Ages. Another is Steps to Christ. Another is The Great Controversy. These are great books to read. A great way of looking at it and saying, is this really true? So pick one of those books up. You'll find very quickly if you read The Desire of Ages, Ellen White checks the box on the test of whether she believes Jesus came in the flesh. She's, she proclaims him as the eternal God, the creator of the, the universe, which John makes clear in John 1 1. And she also proclaims him as a literal human that has come to earth, God become flesh. She refocuses our attention on the Bible and you'll find every single paragraph has a quote or a phrase or a, a text reference back to the Bible. You spend some time in Ellen White's, what she's written, and you'll find yourself just enriched in your Bible study. Things that you hadn't thought of come to light and it's, it's pretty exciting to, to, to do that. Not that she says anything new, you could have found it in the Bible too, but prophets have a way of teasing things out of God's word that sometimes we haven't been patient enough to find for ourselves. If you look at her life and her ministry, you'll find that uh, the fruits that came from her were kindness and humility, uh, a a stalwart uh, truthfulness. This is a woman who you could look to and say, she's a model Christian, She's the kind of person who, uh, she, she got her money from royalties from her books, and she made sure that she was able to provide for continued ministry that she did, but um, if she had a little bit of extra money, sometimes she'd even take out loans when she didn't have extra money, she would send it to people, like, oh, there's a mission that needs to start in whatever country, and she'd send money and launch a missionary, or she would say to a conference that wasn't paying its pastors well enough. You need to pay your pastors more. And in the meantime, she'd put her money where her mouth was and she'd take her money and she'd send it to supplement those pastors so they could eat. This is a woman who was uh, generous and giving. A co-worker of 23 years said, Mrs. White's life far transcends the life of anyone I've ever known or with whom I have been associated. She was uniformly pleasant, cheerful, and courageous. She was never careless, flippant, or in any way cheap in conversation or manner of life. She was a personification of serious earnestness regarding the things of the kingdom. I never once heard her boast of the gracious gift God had bestowed upon her or of the marvelous results of her endeavors. And and she wasn't haughty because of her position as a prophet. She never um, required a position in the church. She never demanded that her words be, be taken seriously. She simply said what God told her to say. And you can see that, well, the best test is a child. Her grandchildren loved to hang out with her. Partly is because she, she told stories and she collected stories, children's stories to, to read to her, her grandkids to come, when they came over. Partly it was also because she fed them uh, cookies and milk when, when they came over. <laughs> um, one of her grandkids, or her great-grandkids, uh, was leading a tour that I was on. And she, she said, um, uh, Grandma Ellen loved chocolate chip cookies. And she always had a big batch when grandkids came by. <laughs> she was a real person and she dealt with the same things that we deal with anger and frustration and disappointment and grief, but she dealt with them knowing her savior was near and she dealt with him with grace and poise. Did she have visions and dreams? The answer is yes. And, uh, and, 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 there is interesting things that happened that you can line up with stuff that happened to prophets in the Bible. Like Daniel talks about being completely without breath and Ellen White would sometimes have visions for a half an hour, or an hour or more where she didn't breathe the whole time. And they would even test it and put mirrors in front of her and doctors would perform um, observations. The, the example of what she had in vision was very similar to what the Bible describes. She also did future telling A little bit, not a lot. And one of the clearest examples is when in um, 1906, around the time of the San Francisco-Oakland earthquake, um, she'd received warnings of impending judgment for a while, um, but in April 16, 1906, she saw in a vision and, quote, uh, houses shaken like a reed in the wind. She talked about buildings falling to the ground. She said that in her visions pleasure resorts, theaters, hotels and homes of the wealthy were shaken and shattered. Many lives were blotted out of existence she said and the air was filled with the shrieks of the injured and the terrified. It seemed that the forbearance of God was exhausted and the judgment had come. And history recounts just two days later at 5.12 in the morning the San Andreas Fault slipped 270 miles and crumbled the foundations of the earth the city was destroyed for 490 blocks some 225,000 people were left homeless 800 dead 1500 injured insurance companies went bankrupt because of the claims two days before she said this is what would happen and it happened There's all kinds of other things that you can point to, but I'd like to remind you of one thing as you study this particular test about accuracy, most of the prophets have conditional prophecies. Remember the story of Jonah? He was a true prophet, but he went to Nineveh and they repented. And so the thing he promised would happen didn't happen because they repented. It was a conditional prophecy. So just keep that in mind as you look at stuff that has happened or hasn't happened that Ellen White has said. Check to see if it's conditional and what were the conditions. From my personal life and the blessings that I've received from reading Ellen White, I'd like to encourage you to pick up and read something that she's written. If you hadn't read it in a while, maybe you've been disillusioned with some people that like to do what we call um, Ellen White bashing. (laughs) Um, some churches have Bible bashers. We have Ellen White bashers, um, and and they like to take quotes out of context, just like the media likes to do for presidents and you know politicians. They like to take quotes out of context and then beat you over the head with them. Please don't do that. But if you've been disillusioned by Ellen White because of the behavior of some, I'd like to encourage you to pick up a book like Steps to Christ, and let let her talk to you about her love for Jesus. Pick up the book Desire of Ages. And let her show you the Jesus that she knew. If you've never heard about Ellen White, this is the first time uh, that you've really been challenged to explore the subject, I'd like to encourage you to do the same. Uh, Pick up a book and say, "Eh, what is this? But I don't want you to do what the Mormons ask you to do. They give you the Book of Mormon, and what do they ask you to do? Read it and see if uh, your soul stirs within you. If you have a warm feeling in the bosom. I don't want to make fun. That's not my intention here, but I just want to be clear. The Bible never asks us to see if we have a warm feeling in our bosom. It asks us to test the spirits to see if they're from God. And I've given you 10 tests. Please do use those tests, engage your reason and explore and say, is this true? And if so, then follow along. And if not, then throw it to the side. I don't want to put any pressure on you to accept Ellen White as a prophet. But there's another conclusion that I want you to come to. Not just that you should look at it, but I also want you to come to the conclusion that God has invited us to receive his spirit. You and me, not just some Ellen White who was there at the end of a big time prophecy in the late 1700s, early 1800s. That was good and it's helpful and it's good for you and me today. But God is here right now inviting us to receive his spirit. Are we following what he's revealed? Is the Holy Spirit able to show us something new. He won't be unless we accept and and follow what he's already revealed in his word. And when we do, when we're obedient to him, then he promises all these gifts for the edification of the church, for the worship, the corporate worship of the church, and for the mission of taking the gospel to the world. I hope that you'll take a second look and examine your life and make sure you are ready to receive God's Holy spirit. Would you stand with me as we sing our closing hymn?